You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today is another release of our mini episode series we've sent out to you all every Saturday. This is the episode where it is just me diving into a specific topic to help you become a better investor. With that, let's dive right in. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. During this episode, I'm going to try to summarize some of the things I've learned from Ray Dalio's thesis on the long-term debt cycle and what in the world someone can do with their investment portfolios, given some of this valuable information that Ray and many other great investors have contributed. For those who aren't familiar, Ray Dalio runs the largest hedge fund in the world with $140 billion in assets under management. And Ray Dalio himself is worth over $20 billion today. As many of you are already aware, TIP was founded on studying Warren Buffett's value investing principles. But as voracious readers and students of everything the investment world touches, Preston and Stig ended up discovering all of the great work that Ray Dalio did. Ray looks at the big macro picture, which is nothing like Warren Buffett's approach to investing, which doesn't really look at what's going on in the macro landscape at all. To get an introduction to Dalio's work, he put out this brilliant video on YouTube called How the Economic Machine Works. To summarize it a bit, the video discusses how there are three drivers or forces that drive the economy. That is productivity growth, the short-term debt cycle, and the long-term debt cycle. I love the chart that Dalio shows in relation to these three. Essentially, the productivity growth is steady. In his chart, he just simply shows a linear line moving up and to the right. Then Given that productivity growth, the real economy can move above and below that productivity line because of this thing called credit, or in other words, debt. The big swings above and below the productivity growth show the effects of the long-term debt cycle. And then the short-term debt cycles are just smaller versions of the longer cycle, which are oftentimes called just the business cycle. Dalio outlines how the short-term debt cycles occur every five to eight years on average, And the long-term debt cycles end up playing out about every 75 to 100 years. The way these debt cycles end up playing out is ultimately driven by credit. Because most of the money in circulation is not base money. It is credit that has been lent out by banks. Credit is what most people know as debt or taking on a loan. So somebody goes to the bank and takes on a loan to, say, buy a home. This is a win-win transaction as the bank collects interest on the loan they give out and the borrower gets to purchase something today they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. When somebody takes out a loan to purchase something, that increases the money supply in the system as new money is created out of thin air that didn't otherwise exist. Since credit is a large part of the overall economy, economic activity is largely driven by interest rates which are set by the central bank. When interest rates are high, the cost of borrowing is high, so overall people are going to borrow less money. When interest rates are low, the cost of borrowing is low, so overall people are going to go out and borrow more money. A prime example of this is when the COVID pandemic hit. 
The central bank lowered interest rates to try and stimulate the economy by encouraging market participants to borrow money and then go out and spend it in the economy. So credit in the economy can be kind of a self-reinforcing cycle. When someone borrows money, they have buying power they wouldn't otherwise have. So they go out and spend the money they borrow, and the person or entity that receives that money now has money they wouldn't otherwise have, which makes them more credit worthy to go out and borrow money. So that person might go out and take out a loan as well. So that kind of helps paint a picture of how credit or debt has such a big impact on our overall economy, which ends up creating these boom and bust cycles. As we all know, it's not only reinforcing on the way up, but it's also reinforcing on the way down as well. The problem with credit is you can't just have ever increasing debt levels without someday paying the price for that debt. When someone takes on debt today, say they buy a house, they are spending more than they produce when that debt is taking on, but spending less than they produce later on when they end up having to pay back the loan. And this goes for any person or entity taking on debt as there are no free lunches. Think about it. In order to buy something that you can't afford, you need to spend more than you make. And then to pay that back over time, you need to spend less than you make. Because of this, credit creates cycles in our economy. When the economy gets overheated and there's too much economic activity leading to inflation and prices, the central bank will raise interest rates to try and slow the economy down. Raising interest rates naturally leads to less borrowing and less economic activity. These short-term debt cycles that last every five to eight years just continue to grow as each top and bottom of the cycle is higher than the previous cycle and there's more debt in the system, and governments and individuals continue to borrow more and more money instead of paying off their existing debt. Put another way, these short-term cycles would last five to eight years. Eventually, they top out and we enter a recession, and the policymakers will stimulate the economy and lower interest rates again to allow the economy to pick back up again. As the overall debt burden continues to grow, eventually it reaches a point where the debt needs to start being paid back as the system has become over-indebted, which leads to decreased spending in the economy in the conclusion of what Dalio calls the long-term debt cycle. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com 
slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. The total debt burden in the US today is as high as it's ever been. The last time the debt burden peaked was in the early 1930s, which was roughly 90 years ago, which falls in line with Dalio's timeline of how long a long-term debt cycle actually lasts. In Dalio's video, he actually says that the long-term debt cycle concluded in 2008 with the pop of the real estate bubble. But what central banks chose to do was simply lower interest rates to zero and allow the debt bubble to reinflate even further to today. If you look at the long-term trend of interest rates, you'll see that interest rates hit zero around 1930, and they hit zero again in 2008 during the financial crisis. Interest rates have been the tool that central banks have been able to use to stimulate the economy. But once it hits that 0% mark, they've essentially lost the ability to influence markets using that tool. And it's another sign that we are at the end of the long-term debt cycle. Another big issue is that as more and more debt is accumulated in the economy, this makes businesses and individuals more fragile to the inevitable economic shocks. For example, many businesses will go bankrupt if we lock down the economy because of a pandemic because most of them don't have ample cash to make it through this type of crisis. Today in the US, the total debt to GDP is around 340%. During the Great Depression, this peaked at around 300%. And with the deleveraging in the system, this dropped all the way down to 120% in the 1950s. So eventually, this debt needs to be resolved in some way, shape, or form. For things to correct, normalize, and revert to the mean, a deleveraging event is required. Dalio outlines four ways that the economy can deleverage and allow things to revert back. That's one, people, businesses, and governments cut their spending and pay down their debt. Two, debts are reduced through defaults and restructuring. Three, Wealth is distributed from the haves to the have-nots, or in other words, taxes are raised. And four, the central bank prints more money to devalue the debt and make it easier to pay back. Now, the first two options, cutting spending and debt defaults and restructuring, those are both extremely painful, and my guess is that they are not likely to happen. After digging into some of Lynn Alden's research, she believes that really the only way for governments to work their way out of this mess is to inflate away the debt. So ideally, they will print money 
decreasing the value of the dollar to make the debt levels more manageable. Given the incentive structure in the political sphere, as the people in power are in power for four years or so, it's much easier to take the quote unquote easy way out in the short term and hand the problem off to the next set of people to come into office. Printing money and handing it out to people is much easier than telling everyone they need to start paying off their debt and they're going to have higher taxes so the government can start paying off its debt. It's just much easier to print the money and inflate it away and pass the problem along to someone else. If governments did decide to cut spending or default on their debts, this would be extremely deflationary and would cause a depression probably worse than the Great Depression itself back in the 1930s. So in Lynn's research, she looked back through history and found that the majority of countries nearing this long-term debt cycle ended up resolving it through inflation. And sometimes that inflation got way out of control and eventually led to hyperinflation. So the big question is, what can investors do to protect themselves during this environment? Let's start with what asset classes are expected to perform the worst. If inflation persists over the coming years as it's ran hot in 2022, then cash and bonds will not be a good performer as their real returns are likely to be negative. As the Dalio saying goes, cash is trash and he definitely hasn't been favorable towards bonds either. As for stocks, it's somewhat hard to say. Stocks did not perform well in prior inflationary periods such as the 1940s and the 1970s, but there are many sectors of the stock market, so some types of companies will perform better or worse than others. But there are many sectors of the stock market, so some types of companies will perform better than others. Prior to COVID, we saw a decade of low inflation and big tailwinds for big tech companies, which carried the S&P 500 to have a very good run. I personally don't expect the ride to be straight up from here like it has in the past, at least in real terms after accounting for inflation. I would expect cash flowing real estate to perform better than stocks and bonds, especially if you have a fixed rate mortgage attached to the property as the debt gets easier to pay off over time and the dollars to pay back the loan are worth less and less. And on top of that, you have your rents continuing to go up and up while you have that fixed rate mortgage. Lynn Alden suggests that the assets you want to own during an inflationary period are the scarce and productive assets. Specifically, the assets she mentioned were value stocks, commodities, gold, and Bitcoin. She believed that Bitcoin will be the biggest beneficiary of this environment. Her reasons for this are twofold. One, you have a network effect with Bitcoin that is like a tech company that only gets stronger as more and more people join the network. And two, you have the only asset on the planet that has a fixed limited supply as that is what is programmed into the code of the network as it has a supply limit of 21 million coins. So it could be the perfect storm for Bitcoin in this inflationary environment. If you prefer real tangible assets, then commodities or commodity producers might be a strong inflation hedge. These tend to do well in times of high inflation, whereas gold and Bitcoin have an eventual correlation with inflation, but not at the same time that commodities would oftentimes. And that's what we're seeing right now in 2022 as commodities are running hot and Bitcoin and gold haven't been performing quite as well. I'll be sure to include the link to Ray Dalio's video, How the Economic Machine Works, and Lynn Alden's article, Fixing the Debt Problem in the show notes for those that are interested in checking those out. All right. That's all I had for you today. 
If you guys have any questions related to anything I discussed during this episode, feel free to reach out to me. My email is clay at theinvestorspodcast.com. And on Twitter, my username is at clay underscore fink. That's at C-L-A-Y underscore F-I-N-C-K. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.